0: I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. As you recall, last week we considered this this narrative of Jesus suggesting to his disciples that they get into this fishing boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. As they cross the sea, uh, 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 the sea turns up a storm. We considered how how Jesus has authority even over nature itself. And now this narrative before us, beginning in verse 26, picks up after they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, please pay careful attention for this is the word of our Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, "'son of the Most High God? "'I beg you, do not torment me.' "'For he had commanded the unclean spirit "'to come out of this man. "'For many a time it had seized him. "'He was kept under guard "'and bound with chains and shackles. "'But he would break the bonds "'and be driven by the demon into the desert. "'Jesus then asked him, "'What is your name?' "'And he said, "'Legion.' For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And these and those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the to asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, the first question and answer of our catechism, this catechism that we've recently, recently considered, is Wonderful. I mentioned just a few moments ago, it begins with this great question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What a great way to begin an exposition of the truth of the Word of God. This first question and answer is, is worth the price of the document in and of itself, even though it, it is free, and if you don't have one, you can pick one up on the front table. It's a wonderful way to begin an exposition of our faith you'll notice that the answer points us in a very great direction it says that our ultimate comfort in this life and in death comes by belonging to Jesus Christ but what does that mean what does it mean to truly belong to Jesus Christ the answer continues and says that it means that our sins have been forgiven it means that we've been redeemed or set free from the tyranny the power of the devil It means that we now have a Father who watches over us and promises to work all things for our good. It also means that we have the Spirit of Christ residing in our hearts, assuring us of our salvation, invigorating our wills to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, most of those things, I think, are pretty self-evident in terms of what they mean. This evening, I want to focus our attention upon one of those phrases. What does it mean when we confess that we've been set free or redeemed from the tyranny of the devil? That's not quite as immediately obvious. What does it mean to be under the tyranny of the devil? Thus, what does it mean to be redeemed, set free from his power? Well, this brings to the table the, the topic of spiritual warfare. And now, I think we all know that when this topic is brought up, many questions and various explanations and answers ensue. Probably all can think of individuals who who see the devil under every rock. Every negative thing that happens in this life is the work, explicit work of a demon or Satan himself. But when we look into our broader secular culture, we're also confronted with a viewpoint which says that Satan, demons, they cannot exist. It's a complete contradiction to everything that we know scientifically in this modern age. So this evening, I want us to focus our minds. What do we mean when we confess? The very first question and answer of our catechism, what do we mean when we confess that we've been redeemed, set free from the tyranny of the evil one or the devil? When in order to answer that question, I'd like us to consider three main points from this text before us. I believe this text seeks to answer that very question. So first we'll consider the cosmic war. That is to say, we live in a, in a cosmic war. The drama of Scripture is really a drama of this war. The cosmic war. And then we'll consider the certainty of Christ's victory. The certainty of Christ's victory. And lastly, we'll consider the responses to Christ's victory. The responses to Christ's victory. So first, the cosmic war. As I mentioned, last week we considered that narrative where Jesus gathered his disciples into this fishing boat and they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was known to be able to churn to up a storm in a moment's notice. And that's what happened. Jesus calmed this storm. He rebuked the wind and the waves. And now this narrative begins as they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that their destination was this, this territory called uh, Gerasenes. Now this was a Gentile country, Gentile territory. This is a bit unusual. This is the one and only time that we see Jesus ministering in Gentile lands. And almost as soon as Jesus leaves this fishing boat and steps upon dry ground, he's confronted with a demoniac. And we're told that this man doesn't just have a demon, he has demons in the plural. And this man, we are told, is is naked. I'm sure he would have no doubt been quite disheveled, probably outgrown hair and outgrown beard. We're told that he was living among the tombs, among the dead, and that he was known to repeatedly cry out and cut himself with rocks. That's what Mark's account of this narrative tells us. And the townspeople, in order to... Uh, constrict his unpredictable behavior they would tie up his hands with with chains and his feet with shackles or, or a rope and the demons inside him would cause him to break forth from these chains and these shackles and he'd be driven out into the wilderness driven out into the desert this man was a tormented man an afflicted man And I should note one thing as we go through this narrative. One thing you'll notice is that Luke sort of skips. In terms of time sequence, he goes back and forth. He'll, he'll say something, then he'll go back in time. And he'll say something, the present, he'll go back in time. And he does this for literary effect. And sometimes it gets lost on us as we read it through an English translation. But that's, that's sort of why the time sequence is, is a bit out of order. But we see that, that Jesus, as he encounters this demoniac, this tormented man, He commands the demon to leave him with a word. Again, we see the power of the word of Christ. This should not surprise us. This is one of the the main themes we've seen in the book of Luke thus far. The powerful word of Christ. The powerful word of Christ to control the forces of nature. The powerful word of Christ to raise a young man from the dead. The powerful word of Christ to cleanse a leper. And we see his word, his command, his power over the the spiritual forces of evil. So he commands this this demon to to leave uh, this afflicted man. and, And notice the demon's response. He cries out, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Do not torment me. Now observe this. This demon knows that he is completely powerless to act contrary to the will and command of Christ. No matter how much he hates it, he cannot act contrary to the command and will of Christ. He says, "I beg you, do not torment me." This demon, for all we know, may have been tormenting this man for years, but we see that this tormentor has met his match. With the Son of the Most High God. Well, in response, Jesus asks the demon, and he says, Well, what is your name? And the demon responds, He says, Legion. Now, this is an important detail that we shouldn't overlook. This term, Legion, it was a militaristic term that referred in that time and place to a group of soldiers in the thousands. And that's why, no- notice what, what Luke then adds right after. The response to the demon, he says, "For, for many demons had entered him." This may indicate to us that there could have been thousands of demons that had been afflicting, tormenting this man. In Mark's account of this narrative, we, we learn that there's two thousand pigs that end up running off the cliff. So we don't know for sure, but there were many demons. Any demons that had been tormenting, afflicting this man. But I also want to note the fact that this term is a, a militaristic term. Should cue in our minds the fact that this is a battle, a battle between Christ and Satan, a battle between God and His Christ and Satan and His demons, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. In this narrative is one battle within a much bigger, broader, cosmic war. In fact, in light of of the Old Testament specifically, we know that this war was first announced in Genesis chapter 3. Recall the first few chapters of our our Bibles, we know that our first parents who were living in, in paradise, they rejected the blessedness that they had in communion with God, And they broke that covenant with God and they made a pact with the devil as they gave in to the serpent's temptation. And God in response, he comes in judgment and he curses the serpent. And one of the curses that he gives to the serpent is he says that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which finds its fulfillment in Christ, but the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Very interesting. This is the first announcement of the gospel. And it's cast in this, this imagery of a war, of a battle. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this war continues throughout the drama of scripture. For instance, in, if you fast forward in the history of Israel, you think of the, the time Israel's time under Joshua as they enter the promised land. And Joshua is commanded to to enter this this holy land of Canaan and completely wipe out the unholy nations who had been residing in that land. This land which pointed forward to heaven itself. And this was meant to teach the people that there's a greater Joshua who is to come. And the Joshua who is to come will redeem the people of God from enemies much greater than the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites. You continue in the history of Israel and you come to that narrative of David and Goliath. Goliath, a giant, the enemy of the people of God, of the Philistines. And we read in, in 1 Samuel that this this Goliath, he is decked out in this coat of armor. In the original Hebrew, the coat of armor is actually scales of armor. In its immediate context, it may have pointed to the Philistine god, Dagon, who is a half-fish, half-god, a scaly god, as it were. When you think about the imagery in light of the canon of Scripture, there's another scaly enemy who stands against, opposed to the people of God, the serpent. And David strikes down Goliath with a stone to the head. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Fast forward to the time of the prophets. The prophets, they prophesy about this one who is to come and they they speak about this one who is to come as a divine warrior. The divine warrior who will put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and will bring victory, victory to the people of God. And so when we come to the Gospels and we come across many instances and narratives where Christ encounters Satan or Christ encounters the demons or unclean spirits, we should not be surprised by that. Christ is at the, the pinnacle of his plan, his goal to crush the head of the serpent. This is the pinnacle of this cosmic warfare. Christ is walking the earth Of course Satan is going to bring forth all of his might to come against the Son of God. So there's a cosmic war. The drama of Scripture, the drama of this this war, which began in Genesis chapter 3. This also explains for us why we see so much overt demonic activity in the Gospels compared to even our time. Again, Jesus is walking this earth. The pinnacle of this war is about to crush the head of that serpent. So there's a cosmic war. Let us now consider the certainty of Christ's victory within this war. The certainty of Christ's victory. Again, we see it in verse 29, for, exa- for example, that Jesus commands this demon to leave. To leave this this uh, demoniac, this afflicted individual. And we, of course, know that Christ is victorious in this battle. The demon recognizes he can't stand a chance against the Son of God. He knows that. But if Christ is victorious in this battle, what about the war? It's common knowledge that one can win a battle but still lose the war. Listen to John 12, verses 31 through 33. We read, Jesus is speaking. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. we can be assured that Jesus doesn't just win this one battle against the forces of Satan, but he wins the war. In casting out legion, Jesus was teaching his people that at the cross, he was going to stomp upon the head of the serpent. Definitively cast out that that evil one, the serpent. So think about the paradox of the cross for a moment. The cross which I'm sure the moment when, when Jesus was hanging upon that piece of wood, the devil likely thought victory was within, within grasp. He had won this long waged war. The disciples themselves probably were, were sunken in despair, thinking that all their hope is gone. But we know that it was actually on the cross that the decisive death blow to the evil one was dealt. What is the connection? I don't think it's immediately obvious how Christ's death was that that moment where Satan is cast out. The serpent is crushed. Well, what did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish? Well, it dealt with our sin problem. The problem which brought about this cosmic war in the beginning, from in Genesis chapter three, the author of the Hebrews tells us that through death Christ came to destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. Because of the death of Christ, the accusations of the evil one cannot stick. The accusations that come through our conscience cannot stick because all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been satisfied, paid for on the cross. Think about this man for a moment. I think this man is a great illustration of what Christ's death, his victory over the power of of the evil one, does for us this man who who was at the beginning of our narrative naked living in tombs among the dead insane not in his right mind well this man after the demons are cast out is clothed he's now a member of society he's in a a sound state of mind Think about ourselves spiritually for a moment. We all, apart from Christ, were naked. That's how Paul describes our spiritual condition. We are naked before the holiness of God. That is, we have no merit, no righteousness to stand on. But in Christ, we are clothed with his robes of good works and righteousness. We all, apart from Christ, were once living among the tombs and the filth of, of our sin and misery. But now in Christ... We are members of the household of God. We were once darkened in understanding, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But now, the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened. To be able to see the truth of the word of God as it's revealed to us, to, to suppress the truth less and less. So what this passage teaches us so in saying, Christ, we're safe. We should have comfort because Christ is victorious, not just in this one sliver of a battle, but in the cosmic war. Because he did go to the cross. He did rise up victorious on the third day. And we know that the accusations of the devil can't stand against his people. Again, we are like David, going forth to fight, or we are like, we are like the Israelites, going forth to fight our enemies behind David behind Christ, our leader. Briefly, this this narrative also points us forward to the second coming of Christ. We see the consummation of his victory. Yes, Satan was crushed at the cross, but in this age, he's still gasping for his final breaths, and we see the effect of those gasps. But in the second coming, the serpent who's been crushed will be thrown into that lake of fire. You'll notice that the demons, they beg Jesus to not be thrown into the abyss. That is to say, they beg Jesus not to issue forth a final judgment, the judgment that is reserved for them at the end of the age. And know how they, they know what their final destiny is. They know that their future is the abyss. They're asking a, a delay of, of that of that judgment, and so they ask for permission to be to go into these herd of pigs, and they Jesus grants this, and they run off the cliff and drown in the Sea of Galilee. Now the abyss, it, it in a lot of ways, it, it has reference to. Uh, the depths of the sea, the Old Testament refers to it as, as one being thrown into the depths of the sea. I referenced last week how the sea is that archetypal picture of judgment, chaos, and death itself. And the abyss is also a synonym for, for Hades. So as the demons enter these, these herd of pigs and run off the cliff into the sea, I think we see a foreshadowing. The second coming when Christ will cast Satan and his hosts into that lake of fire, that place of judgment. But Christ is victorious. He's victorious. Well, what should our responses be to Christ's victory? Well, I guess uh, briefly consider two of the responses that are present in this narrative to this exorcism that Jesus uh, performs. you notice that the people in the surrounding countryside, they hear about what, what has happened and they're seized with great fear. They're seized with great fear and they ask Jesus to depart, to flee from their land. They want nothing to do with this man. This man who has power over, over the demonic forces. Again, these are Gentiles, pagan individuals. And this is fearful. This is someone with a po- power and authority they've never witnessed before. They reject the victorious king. The unholy hates the holy. The darkness, darkness hates light. We see that in the responses of the villagers. But again, see, I want us to consider also the, the response of this former demoniac. And it's in stark contrast to the rest of the in- individuals on the countryside. Verse 35, you see that he, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Later on, we see that he asks to go with Jesus. He wants to be counted as one of the, one of the disciples, one of the twelve. And Jesus' response to this is, no, you need to stay Stay in your country and declare all that God has done for you. And Luke adds, to conclude this narrative, that he went and declared all that Jesus had done for him. Now we don't want to over-interpret that, but this man knew that what had happened to him, this transformation, was not from a mere man. This was of God. Jesus was somehow associated with the divine. And he commissions this Gentile to declare the good news of what God has done for him in Christ in this Gentile region. And here I think Jesus is foreshadowing for us the future of his mission in the book of Acts, in the new covenant, as the gospel will indeed go forth to the nations. Well outside Jerusalem, Gentile pastors will be raised up to minister to the individuals in those regions. And think about us here this evening. We're far from Jerusalem. According to the context of this passage, we're in Gentile territory. And we are called to declare the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. In the midst of a a society, of a culture, especially here in the Northwest, that in a in a lot of ways, resemble the people of the countryside who want nothing to do with Christ, who want him and his people, they want them to depart. But we're here. We've been commissioned here to declare the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And this is exciting. It's exciting to be a part of God's mission 2,000 years later of bringing this gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, as I mentioned, when we confess in the first question and answer of our catechism, that Christ, he has redeemed us, set us free from the power and the tyranny of the devil. What that means is that there is a cosmic war that's taking place. But Christ is victorious, and we are called to respond to his victory by declaring all that he has done for us.